Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. A little programming note before we get started. No goal update today and very likely a disappointing goal update next week. I think looking around today, we can clearly see that the traditions dating back to the cavemen of respecting the wisdom of the aged, the knowledge of the seasoned, the advice of the old fogies carries on to this very day. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Shut up, Boomer. You're not needed anymore. We got this now. Oh, these old people are just sucking up our resources. Am I right? That's why we need to get them packed into the old folks' homes and give them only what's needed to make them comfortable. Or better yet, maybe they just need to go on a long drive into the country, right? Man, I'm glad I'll never get old. I mean, we've clearly milked them for all they're worth, and a lot of them can't even use their cell phone or set the clock on their VCR. <laughs> Who's with me? What? <laughs> what? What did I say? Anyway, the reality is that we younger generations know everything they know, and way more, especially now that we have AI. These guys have nothing to offer anymore, just pretty much eating my pudding and trying to breathe my air. On today's episode, first we're going to burn it all down, and then we'll have to have that uncomfortable talk with Dad about... Maybe it's time to move where you can get a little more help. So grab the gasoline and the matches and contact the local auctioneer because... What? What did you say? Who's talking? Here we go. What button do I... Why can't millennials take a joke? Because the joke always hits just a little too close to their parents' house. What do millennials get for doing nothing? A trophy. Why are millennials so odd? Because they can't even. Let's play a game of Millennial Monopoly. The rules are simple. You start with no money, you can't afford anything, the board is on fire for some reason, and everything is your fault. No, I joke. To all you millennials who feel stressed out, try not to worry. Just think about the future, when things will be much, much worse. You know, there are a ton of millennial jokes and a ton of boomer jokes... There are not a lot of Gen X jokes. We're kind of the forgotten generation, just kind of doing our thing. Some may say the best generation. Some may say that. Every generation has their own thing, right? Millennials, unfortunately, have been given the label of snowflakes. And in at least some part, that can be an accurate label. But millennials definitely view the world differently than the other generations before them. That we know for sure. Now, just to back up for a second, give a little clarity. The greatest generation is quickly fading from existence. They were born from 1910 to 1924. The silent generation was born from 1925 to 1945. We get to the baby boomers. That was 1946 to 1964. Gen X is from 65 to 1979. Millennials are 1980. To 1995, Gen Z is 1996 to 2010, and Generation Alpha, which I didn't know that was what their generation was called, is apparently 2011 to 2025. So the millennial generation was the first to, in large part, grow up with computers, video games, 
CDs, DVDs. I, being born toward the end of the Gen X range, remember when CDs and DVDs came in. I remember in about 1980 or 81, the music teacher was able to borrow the first portable synthesizer in the school district from the high school and brought it to our kindergarten class and played Major Tom by Peter Schilling. And that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. I remember the first personal computer showing up in middle school, the Apple IIc, and we could play educational games and a few fun games like Oregon Trail, as long as nobody else was using the five and a quarter inch floppy disk at the time. Then in high school, we figured out how to copy games from disk to disk and played a bunch of stuff they didn't want us to. Most of the screens were either green or orange. Our printers were dot matrix, except for a few that had those color ribbons. Then I think it was my last year of high school, I, th I think, that we got the Max. They had tiny, we're talking like a seven or eight inch diagonal screens, grayscale screens. And they had this new thing that just blew our minds. A mouse. And that was the coolest thing. I took a year off between high school and college, and when I got to college in the mid-1990s, we were in the era of gateway computers, Pentium processors, two-button mouses, and other magical things. I remember my first cell phone. I think it was my third year of college. I got a Nokia, one of those unbreakable phones with the little plastic antenna thingy that you pulled up. I don't remember what I paid. It wasn't much per month, but I only got 10 free minutes of talk time per month. And then it was like a dime a minute or something like that, unless you called off times, in which case it was like a quarter a minute. Needless to say, I used it because it was cool to use it, but I didn't use it much because I was broke. Millennials are the first generation that, by and large, grew up with the electronics and computers, video games, etc. That's just one aspect of millennial life. They just grew up differently than the generations before. And because they grew up differently, they view the world differently. They have their own unique view of what they consider to be important and what they find silly and useless. And found on MSN.com headline, saying goodbye to boomer traditions, 10 trends millennials refuse to follow. Yeah, that's right, Boomer. Go to bed, old man. Again, what I find interesting is that it's not Gen X the millennials are breaking away from. It's the Boomers. And maybe that's because Gen X is, as I said, just kind of here. Or maybe that's because Gen X doesn't have anything millennials find to be too crazy. But here's the thing. From this article, I'm apparently a millennial um, looking at these trends and what they're doing with them. Now, this isn't a typical article. This is actually a slideshow, each slide representing one of these just horrible boomer traditions. So let's see what millennials are kicking to the curb, shall we? The author starts by saying, quote, Millennials are a generation of trailblazers and trendsetters, always seeking to set their own unique path. They tend to be more conscious about our health. Let's see, he changes to our there. I think he's a millennial. Finances, relationships, lifestyles, and more, opting for healthier alternatives that better suit their needs and the planet's. This drive has led many young people today to say no to a plethora of things that have been accepted as part of normality in prior generations. Now, I guess I'd start probably by arguing that every generation is, in their own way, a trailblazer and a trendsetter. I mean, it's true that millennials are likely more conscious about their health, as past generations were really a much more physical generation. Didn't really have to think about it as much. I mean, going for a jog was not a thing that boomers did. They didn't have to. They didn't have the time to do it. 
Finances are more of a focus because of all the financial opportunities, investment options, etc. Relationships and lifestyles, every generation deals with those in their own way. And healthier alternatives for the planet? I mean, seriously? That's because older generations weren't worried about the planet because they knew man wasn't going to destroy the planet. I'd argue that health, planet, lifestyle, finances, etc., those type of concerns are more of a focus because of the importance we've placed upon them and the stress we've put on people to care about them. Anyway, let's take a look at the tradition, shall we? Tradition number one, useless junk. He states that millennials smartly limit their purchases to things they need, a few things they want, and limit the junk that they accumulate. He does mention that money is tight, which has something to do with it, but they also see big houses and garages as nothing but invitations to accumulate stuff. Now, in large part, I'd agree. I don't listen to Dave Ramsey much anymore, but he pushes the idea that you buy a house and you work your way up in house over time. Over and over, he's made the comment about moving up in house. And that's generally as individuals or couples get older, and I'd have to say, why do you need to move up in house? Now, Ramsey is in the boomer generation, and maybe that's just how he's wired. I don't know. I know that right now, I have a house much larger than I need, but I've pretty much kept it for two reasons. One, to give my kid a stable place to grow up in, and two, to keep my kid in the same school district. Now, once she graduates high school, definitely when she graduates college, it frees me up to move houses, and frankly... I'd move down if I move into a different house. We've worked, me and her, have worked to keep our extra stuff to a minimum. The attic above the garage is not full by any means. The garage is full, but not with useless junk. The toys, the clothes, the electronics, etc., those are generally sorted through about once per year, trying to keep the extra stuff to a minimum. Get rid of the stuff we don't need. Now, I'm not sure what the minimalist drive is for millennials, but uh, hey, I'm with you. Second is cable TV. Millennials are cutting the cord, opting to go for streaming options in order to better tailor their options to what they really want. And Now, yes, the boomers are more apt to hang on to things like cable, home phones, newspapers, and the U.S. Postal Service. But the reality is that with a larger and larger percentage of people having high-speed internet, spending $150 for cable no longer makes sense when you can spend less for what you specifically want or even the same amount, but get more options and more content for your dollar. Additionally, the author states that millennials watch what they want on their mobile devices. And although, yeah, I I can do that, I find that to be annoying. Now, I differ from millennials in that fact. I want a large TV, and I want a bunch of large speakers, and I want entertainment stands with component shelves, and I want individual components on those shelves. And that's what I do have. But back to this point, yes, cable TV is a dinosaur on the edge of extinction, regardless of who does or doesn't use it. Third, live to work. He says, quote, Boomers and Gen Xers are known for working hard to get ahead. Not only do they want to earn an income to support themselves, but they also want to climb the corporate ladder. Millennials, on the other hand, don't aspire to these beliefs. They see that corporations are only in it for themselves and have no loyalty to their employees, regardless of whether they are top performers. Well, okay, I think this really depends, and maybe this is true in general, but I think it really depends, right? Personally, I chose a career as an engineer because I wanted to be an engineer. When I was a few weeks away from graduating, one of my fellow graduating mechanical engineers had two different offers on the table. 
He had a job that paid more, but was away from family and in an area he didn't really want to be. And the other option paid less, but it was closer to home and in an area he definitely wanted to live in. My advice to him was to take the job that offered him the better life. The money would come eventually. He took the money. I wasn't good enough friends with him to keep up with him. I'd imagine he regretted his decision and probably wakes up every morning saying, Dan was right. He was right about everything. That's what I'd imagine. I don't know about this one. I guess in my career, I've seen boomers through millennials and, and even now some Gen Zers that have been corporate ladder climbers. And I've seen those that are content in where they're at. Personally, I'm a reliability engineer. I've had options to move into other positions to climb the ladder and I don't have the desire. I like what I do. I'm good at what I do. My management is happy with what I do, and I can see how I make a difference. At the same time, I've put a lot of time into my kid, my church, my free time. Bottom line, I find it more important to have a real work-life balance, not just say that I do. I value my personal time as much as and really more than my work time. And that's not to say I don't put in high effort at work. I do. In fact, it appears that I may have some global engineering role opportunities in a few years. And maybe in a few years, I'd like that. Maybe not. But it won't be done for the sake of money or ladder climbing. It would be done because that's what I'd like to do now. Sadly, I would have to agree that in general, from a corporate perspective, we are mostly just numbers. Replaceable numbers, in fact. The way I've approached this understanding is that I'm very dedicated to my employer until I'm not. While I'm employed, I'm working hard. I'm trying to help the company. I'm earning my salary. But if I get to a point where I want to move on, I'll give my notice and I'll move on. I don't believe that in general I owe the company anything. That said, when I moved to my current location and job, the company that hired me at the time... Well, they flew me up for an interview. Then they flew my family and I up for a house hunting trip. They offered a fairly substantial raise. They matched my vacation days and they gave me a good size signing bonus. And about a month after I started, I got a call from an ex-coworker from the company I just left, but a different plant location. He wanted me to come work for him. I couldn't do it. The company spent a lot of time and money to hire me. And in that case, I felt that I did owe it to them for putting that effort into me. I've never regretted that decision. It was the right thing to do. Fourth, wedding industry. He very simply states that millennials are getting married older and they're getting rid of many of the traditional wedding practices. The traditions he mentions are getting married in a church, the clothing, and the large lavish receptions. Well, yeah, I think the insanity of the size and scope of the ceremony and reception got way out of hand. And that includes mine. Better choices could have been made, but no need to walk back down that memory lane. Clothing... Yeah, I'm kind of torn on this one. I'm not a formal dress-up kind of guy. The last suit I bought was when I graduated from college, coming up on 23 years ago. I hung on to that sucker up to about, what, six or seven years ago, maybe? It was a nice suit, but now it's someone else's nice suit. So, I'm not a formal guy, but I'm kind of torn on the manner of dress for a wedding. I think I'd probably have to lean more toward formal because of the importance of the event. What I do think is sad is that people are opting to use the church and clergy for the ceremony less and less and less. I think this is probably just indicative of a culture that's less interested in religious beliefs and ceremonies. Fifth, cable news. He gives a few reasons that cable news is just not important to millennials. One, cutting the cable cuts down on watching cable news. That sounds obvious, although it's not. Two, watching cable news means you have to watch it at a certain time. Three, a lot of independent media out there right now. And four, they feel that independent media gives them a more complete picture, not a politically slanted view. 
Okay. So I agree that millennials are watching less cable news, probably less news in general, but definitely less less cable news. And me too. That's where my agreement with this author pretty much ends. I think he was scratching and clawing for something or anything to point as to reasons why they're not watching it as much. So to argue with the author, cutting the cable doesn't cut down on watching cable news. Nearly every news show is streaming online, most for free, some as part of the pay side of whatever channel the thing is carried on. Second, with the advent of the VCR and now the DVR, as well as on-demand streaming, no cable news show must be watched at the time it comes on anymore, at least for most people. In fact, if I do watch anything that has commercials in it, I prefer to DVR it and then watch it later so I can skip the commercials. Strict timing isn't really a thing anymore. Third, independent media. Okay, yeah, I guess I agree with this point. There are many, many... Oh, many news options, videos, podcasts, print, all computer, internet, electronic-based. They're everywhere out there right now. And this ties into the fourth, they want to consume unbiased media. Okay, I'm not sure that that's so true. The independent media has allowed us to do everything from get a large variety of unbiased media to only consuming media that agrees with our bias to those that are way on the conspiratorial side of whichever political bent they have and I'd argue that in most cases we consume the media that agrees with our worldview. In fact, I'd say that most people exist in echo chambers living in a world of confirmation biased. That's not necessarily a, a good thing. It, it just is. Sixth, pet food brands. Okay, this is one that I, for the most part, just can't deal with. Now I know, this makes me a bad pet owner, or a bad person, or a monster. I know, I get it, but come on. For decades, we've been feeding our pets dry food, some canned food, a few treats here and there, and of course, no human food, except for the stuff that falls and hits the floor, and the stuff we hold under the table for them, and pretty much whatever they want, because they're just so cute. But this trend of it's not healthy unless it's refrigerated, or this trend of gourmet food, this has got to stop, people. Have you seen the prices of these foods? And let's be honest, dogs don't taste it. They barely smell it. And cats just throw it up in about five minutes anyway. Now, I get it. Some animals have dietary needs. I understand that. The prices are still outrageous, but I understand it. But for your standard pet, the pet food that millions upon millions have lived normal lifespans on, isn't that fine? But this author says, quote, millennials love their pets, and it shows in the sales decline of major pet food brands. Just like this group is more proactive about their healthy food they put into their bodies, they are keenly aware of what they put into their furry friends. As a result, millennials are opting for smaller pet food brands that focus on natural, healthy ingredients. I think I'll add a few other possible reasons in there. Along with delays in marriage, single people are more apt to get a pet. In fact, those that are married are tending to delay having kids until later in life, so they instead purchase designer purebred pets that have massive health problems because they've been inbred to the point that they're more genetically compromised than the British royal family. And then they show them off as their fur babies, which, if you want a term that gets under my skin, ugh, that one will pretty much do it every time. Fur baby, come on. It's a cat, or a dog, or a ferret, or whatever. It's not your baby, it's an animal. And that's really the other reason that I would offer millennials are more invested in these overpriced gourmet pet foods. They literally view their pets as children, as a human child. Now look, I'm an animal lover, I, I really am, but it's not a child. But as the PETA AI written account of Genesis states, these are now beings, not beasts or creatures. They're a being, just like you and I are, a being. 
So we must get the special food for little Fifi because my baby loves it. Yeah, your baby eats poo. Okay, your baby can eat rancid meat and not skip a beat. Cats will gut a bird or a rabbit. Trust me, dog chow is the gourmet food. Anyway, let me just <clears throat> climb back down off that soapbox here. Obviously, if this is a main qualification for being a millennial, I'm now like Steve Buscemi on 30 Rock, undercover at the high school with a backwards cap and two skateboards, a t-shirt that says music band with a lightning bolt between the words, saying, how do you do, fellow kids? To a group of students standing by their lockers. Yeah, I just don't really fit in if, if that's the case. Seventh, diamond industry. Now, apparently the diamond industry is in decline. I mean, I, I had no idea. Now, the author does not want you to believe that this has anything to do with millennials or Gen Z putting off marriage until later. I mean, that might be a contributor, but it's not the main reason. Oh, no, sir. Nope, it's how we get the diamonds. Uh, first, they're not happy that millennials, not happy with the conditions the workers are made to endure to get the diamonds. And second, they're pushing back against the mine man with his diamond encrusted boot on their collective neck by limiting the number of diamonds in circulation in order to keep the prices high. Urgh, that guy. Now, sure, sure, that might be true, could be. But let me just make three counter arguments to this. First, iPhone. Second, Nike. Third, literally every product that's coming out of China. Yeah, the working conditions, the age of workers, and the suicide rates of workers don't seem to matter as much in the lithium mines and at the Foxconn factory, where they had to put nets around the upper floors of the high-rise, which happened to be the living quarters of the employees that worked in the factory in the lower levels of the same building in order to catch them from jumping off the balconies so they could feel the peaceful sleep of death rather than work another day making iPhones as long as the Apple Store has an ample supply of the latest phone when it comes out, and so help you if it's not the color I want. Now, take all of my money. See, I think the diamond thing is likely because millennials just don't consider them as important, and that's fine. I, I don't have any problem with that. The old standard of three months of salary for an engagement ring is fine if that's what you want to do, but I think a lot of couples are valuing experiences or other stuff over extravagant rings. Either way, it really doesn't matter to me, but don't try to make it some sort of altruistic thing while literally turning a blind eye to the exact same thing going on in the production of other consumer products. Eight. Ironing clothes. Now, this is where I pound my chest twice with a fist, point to millennials and say with a tear in my eye, I feel you, bruh. Ironing sucks. Now, I know there are some mentally deranged individuals out there that find it to be therapeutic. You can tell me who's hurt you. Ironing is the worst, and, and I'm not a terrible ironer, ironist, iron worker. Apparently, at least with millennials, ironing is going the way of the dodo. A few reasons are given, and these, unlike the diamond thing, I think I pretty much agree with. First, a lot of workplaces are switching to more casual dress, and God bless them. Oh, seriously, if I had been born a boomer, I'd likely have been wearing business casual or maybe even a suit to work every day. I don't want to do that. I wear my steel toes, jeans, and a t-shirt, usually with a snarky saying on it, and that works just fine for me. I can't imagine having to play dress-up every single day. Second, a lot of jobs have switched to at least part-time work from home. So the COVID debacle and the gross mishandling of that instigated the revolt against going to work. And I get it. I was one of those non-essential workers who was able to work from home for about a year. 
and it was great. I mean, can you say comfy pants? <laughs> I sure can. And even now, there's been a realization that there is a percentage of jobs that can be done from home, and there's a percentage of snowflakes that are boycotting the mandates by their bosses and employers to come back to work. Regardless of the reason, yes, working from home would require less ironing, so, you know, win-win. And third, a lot more clothing is made from wrinkle-free fabrics. Now, how do you spell iron? <laughs> D-R-Y-E-R. <laughs> wrinkle-free is the best stuff ever. Now, it doesn't really work, but that's besides the point. It says it's wrinkle-free, so when I pull it out of the laundry basket of clean clothes that it's been sitting at, the bottom of, for the last month, give a quick snap of the wrists, and look, voila, perfect. Plus, I tell myself I'm kind of lumpy anyway, so how would anyone know if the wrinkles or the clothes are me, right? Can we all just agree that wrinkled clothes are the cool trend, please? If we could just make that happen for the next 30 or 40 years, that's probably all I'll need. Someone call up fashion and tell them to get on that. Ninth, wine with corks. Oh, tell me about it. I like my wine in a box with a plastic pull tab under the screw-on cap. That's the way to go. Who's with me, huh? Yeah, here's the thing. I don't drink, not even wine. I'm no pagan. Not going to catch me on that one, Satan. Apparently, the pagan millennials don't like corks and corkscrews, and that uh, effort needed to not only wind a sharp, curly piece of metal through that rock-hard cork, but they don't like to have to pull, apparently, either. <laughs> Mama didn't raise no dummy. No, they like wine with screw-on caps, and to that, not being a wine connoisseur, I say, hmm, classy. Nothing says top tier or upper crust or elite like that cracking sound that the metal tabs of the screw cap make when you grab that grippy thing to help your little noodle arm get enough leverage to twist that sucker off. Now I jest, because it's easy, but you can't imagine how much I don't care about this. If you want to drink wine out of Capri Sun type drink pouches, you go right ahead. You do you, boo. Just remember, there's nothing wrong with drinking wine, but getting drunk... That's when it crosses into sin territory. So enjoy your box or pouch or plastic bottle of wine in the cliché, nondescript brown paper sack responsibly. And finally, tenth, doorbells. He simply states, quote, While most all homes still have doorbells, you are unlikely to spot a millennial ringing one. When they arrive at a house, they instinctively pull out their phone and text that they are there. And yeah, I... I'm full-blown millennial on this one, I think. I mean, I'll ring the doorbell if I'm going in. But if I'm picking someone up, oh, it's a text. And it's not a text after I pull up. No, no, no. I'm not interested in sitting there for multiple minutes waiting in the driveway. It's a text as I'm getting there, when I pull into the neighborhood or when I'm a few minutes away. One thing that I've noticed, though, recently is that people seem to ignore doorbells. Not the people inside the house, the people outside coming up to the house. I have a doorbell. It's right there. It's next to the door handle, which I also have. I have a ring doorbell. I get an alert on my phone when someone enters the monitoring zone of the doorbell. If they ring the doorbell, I'll get a different alert so I know someone is ringing my doorbell. I've noticed over the last few years, kids, adults, service providers, they come up to the door and lightly knock. And if I don't answer, you know, in a few seconds, they'll lightly knock again. But the doorbell is right there. Ring the doorbell. I paid money for the doorbell. I hooked it up. I connected it to my Wi-Fi. I paired it to my phone. Please, for the love, just ring the doorbell. <sighs> I'm rarely waiting within the five-foot range of the front door necessary to hear your gentle tapping on my door, which is one of the main reasons I installed the doorbell. 
I'll bet that if I put a sign on the door saying to either ring the doorbell or text me at my phone number, I'll bet people would be more likely to text. What is it about the doorbell? <sighs> yeah, I didn't mean to go on a little doorbell rant. Sorry. My preference is in line with millennials. Text if you're not going inside, but if you're going inside, walk up and ring the doorbell if there is one. And if you're picking up my daughter for a date, ah, you better come to the house. You can even text her to let her know you're there, but at least for a while, you need to come up and please ring the doorbell and then step inside for a minute. Now, I don't know that I have any eternal truths to really impart here. I just found this interesting. We, and I'm as guilty as any, bag on the millennials or the younger generations quite a bit. And to be honest, a lot of the vocal millennials have made themselves targets for ridicule. But the reality is that millennials just view the world in a different way because of the way that the boomers and the Gen Xers handed it to them. I'd almost call them the lost or maybe the wandering generation. The boomers generally had either a strict upbringing by their parents or they totally rebelled in the hippie days. But the world, although it was showing signs of cracking, was not in chaos. The Gen Xers, like I said, were just kind of there. We're the 80s and 90s kids, which was a time of Reagan and bright colors and some really awful music interspersed in some really great music, and all the sitcoms and comedy movies had a heartwarming message at the end, and there was the upheaval of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, or so we thought. Then Clinton came in, and except for some major indiscretions by the redneck pervert-in-chief, generally the world kept grinding away. But the millennials... They're caught in the middle of the old world and a technological revolution. They grew up with the controversy of W. Bush and the escalating and wholly inaccurate climate fears perpetrated by liars at NASA as well as that bloated blowhard Al Gore and the military traitor John Kerry. They grew up through Obama, the first black president and the individual responsible for setting race relations back a generation or more. Boomers had and have old ideas and old solutions to old problems, and understanding the millennials is difficult at best. Gen Xers are pretty much just mellow, just whatever, it's all good. We made racist, ethnic, and sexist jokes, and nobody cared. We had beer commercials with women in bikinis, and that was fine. We all smoked candy cigarettes as kids. It didn't mean we wanted to smoke them if we got them later in life. We played with toy guns and even brought them to the school to play with on the playground. We had rifles in the back window of our unlocked trucks in the school parking lot with the 30-point buck deer we shot that morning before school in the bed of the truck. We made fun of each other and got made fun of. We played smear the queer and sometimes did the smearing and sometimes got smeared. Life was just life. There were ups and downs, highs and lows, and for the most part, we didn't really overreact to stuff. And maybe that's where the issue comes in with the stereotypical millennial. Nobody has ever shown them how to handle life in general because we just kind of didn't care and figured they wouldn't either. But we didn't take into account the added pressures, the cries of climate death, racism, homophobia, the self-esteem push, the screaming about the horrors of guns, the terrors of bullying, and that bullying is literally everything you do or think or say, so just stop everything and live in fear that you'll get in trouble. We didn't understand the massive change that technology was bringing, some good, some bad, but all different. Maybe we just kind of left them hanging out there to fend for themselves and figure out how to handle the emotions of everything that was being thrown at them. And I'm not saying everyone did this. I know a number of practical parents, my sister and brother-in-law being two of them. I learned a lot from both of them just watching how they handled their kids as they grew up. Not saying their kids, the oldest I believe being the last in the millennial range, the others being in Gen Z. Not saying they all had smooth sailing. There have been ups and downs, but even in highly emotional times, there is a practicality, a base that they fall back on and move on because why stress over that thing? It's just a thing. And what they've been religiously taught comes into play here. God is in control. He's never given up his throne. And no matter what, we can trust him. 
Bottom line, millennials and all generations are at their core the same. We have the same base needs, wants, and desires. We all have the same spiritual problem of which there is only one solution. And now we see an adversarial relationship between millennials and boomers. And that's sad, as we could all learn from each other. That's why I kind of like the idea of a specific intergenerational Sunday school class option. How much could all generations learn by hearing the views of the others? And as we see from this little review, the millennials do view the world very differently. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Generational gaps aren't new. They've been around since the birth of Cain and Abel. And we see examples all throughout the Bible that show the younger generations leading the older, fixing the problems the older generation made, reorienting their people back to God. We see the wisdom that comes with age and the reverence the young had for the old. We may want to learn these important lessons from our ancestors many, many generations past. Anyway, I'll wrap this up here. I hope you found the list of 10 boomer traditions that millennials are apparently shunning to at least be interesting. And hopefully, no matter what generation you're in, you and I can see the value in talking, listening, and learning from each other. Well, after a little hiatus on my part, with more calls on the left to eliminate the Constitution, or create new amendments, or a new Bill of Rights, or the screeching by some about how their branch has powers that their branch absolutely constitutionally does not have, welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 40, which is part 22 of our look at the actual amendments to the real Constitution of the United States. Consider this a safe space to hear and understand what the real laws are, at least supposed to be, governing our country. Let's start with a little side note, shall we? Our current Supreme Court is once again under attack. Not because they ruled in a way that violates the Constitution, rather because they violated precedent, which is a big nothing. Just remember, slavery was legal precedent at one point, and most importantly, they hurt feelings. Some of the major decisions this go-around, this time, in case you missed it, were Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown. This was the constitutionally correct decision that told our illustrious President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., or as I affectionately call him, President Vegetable, that he couldn't just load the presidential money gun and blast our tax dollars all over those who took out student loans. Of course, the left and those that stood to get ten to $20,000 in debt forgiveness have lost their minds. But look, they took out their loans. They need to pay them back. It's not fair to make people that paid cash for college or paid back their loans or paid for their kids to go to college or haven't had anything to do with college pay the loans of others. Constitutionally, Joey Bagapuddin doesn't have the right to just usurp the authority of the House of Representatives. The ruling was correct. The ruling was fair. The ruling was commonsensical. Next is Creative LLC v. Alinas. I don't know if I'm saying that right. This was the case about a web designer being forced to create a wedding website for some gays, which violated her religious, correct, beliefs that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. The SCOTUS ruled that you can't compel someone to violate their religious beliefs in using their creative talents. I'd go farther and say that any business or service provider can discriminate in any way they see fit, as the capitalist system would take care of that problem fairly quickly. But this is a constitutionally correct ruling, no matter how you look at it, as the government does not have the right to force us to violate our religious beliefs. That is, in fact, forcing a religion upon us. 
What would be nice is if we had a lose-or-pay law or some massive penalty for frivolous lawsuits. We all know these abnormal, mentally ill, troublemaking communities are only doing this to try to force their agenda. They could find a large number of people that are pro-degenerate activity that would love to make their website or cake or whatever. We need to make an example of someone and penalize them for this garbage, you know, into oblivion. But again, the left is screaming about discrimination and rah, 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 rah. the court ruled constitutionally correct. Next, we have Groff v. DeJoy. Along the same lines, the court ruled that the USPS couldn't change the rules of the game, the employment agreement, in the middle of the game and force someone to violate their religious beliefs, in this case forcing a postal carrier to work on Sunday. As with the previously mentioned ruling, our religious rights are in the First Amendment. We have our rights. Incidentally, if you're in a position where you're being forced to, oh, I don't know, say use incorrect pronouns, if you're a Christian, you cannot be compelled to lie. And all employers have a non-discrimination clause regarding religion. That's the direction I go. Personally, I'll use whatever name people want to call themselves. We've always been able to change our names to whatever we want. That's my personal decision. Yours may vary. But using wrong pronouns is forcing me to lie. I won't do that. Next, we have Sackett v. Environmental Protection Agency. This was a case where the EPA told a couple that they were not allowed to build or develop on their land because they basically had a ditch that ran into a stream that eventually ran into some protected wetland area or something stupid like that. Basically, the EPA was attempting to say that any land that eventually connected in any way to protected lands are themselves protected lands. This was a massive overstep of authority given to an unelected bureaucracy attempting to just usurp, I mean, well, pretty much everything if given the chance. The Supreme Court said, uh, no, you're not going to do that. Now, I'd argue that the EPA shouldn't even exist, but this at least sets a precedent that these government agencies don't have godlike powers. Of course, the left doesn't like this one because this is exactly what they want, an administrative state, not a constitutional republic. There's a massive difference. And the last one I'll mention, Students for Fair Admissions v. President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions v. University of North Carolina. This was the big one, the smackdown of affirmative action. To summarize, affirmative action is theoretically in place to level the playing field for a discriminated group of people. What it really does is tells blacks that they're too stupid and useless to make it on their own, or more plainly, they'll never measure up to the white man. So those poor silly Negroes need the white man to help them out. This is again the left ensuring the continued slavery of the black man, with the plantation being the social welfare system, affirmative action is included in that, the whip being money, and the slave master being the political left. The left has always been, and is now, and will always be, the racists. They view blacks as stupid, lazy, brutish, unteachable, ungovernable, expendable, useful idiots, and property to be discarded when their use comes to an end. Affirmative action is racist to all ethnicities and is a slap in the face and an insult to blacks. The Supreme Court was right to rule that this is not constitutional. But of course, the left is screaming about how racist this is. In fact, there have been a few leftists that actually said <laughs> out loud that because of this ruling, blacks will never be able to compete based on their own merits. Could someone tell me how that's not unbelievably racist? <sighs>
Now, there were a number of other rulings, important in their own right, of lesser overall importance than these. I've included a link in the notes that goes through all the cases, the summaries, and the rulings, if you're curious. But the Constitution isn't why you're here right now. You're here for the Constitution. So let's continue on with our look at the amendment, shall we? When we last met, Timmy had fallen down a well. Lassie had gone to go get help. Mr. Whipple was still squeezing the Charmin, and Flo was saving you money on insurance. And we had just finished up the 24th Amendment. So today we'll move to the 25th Amendment, nearing the end of all the amendments made to our Constitution in nearly 250 years. You know, I heard a figure the other day that the average Constitution around the world lasts 17 years. We're doing okay. Ours is battered and beaten. It's down, but not out. We're doing okay here. The 25th Amendment has been referenced many times in the last five or six years for about three or four years by those on the left and for the last couple of years by those on the right. This is broken into four sections. We'll cover them one at a time. This is really a major clarification of Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, as it was found that as time marched on and various situations presented themselves, a clarification was desperately needed. So Article 2, Section 1, specifically Clause 6 of the Constitution, states, quote, In case of the removal of the President from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the Vice President. Now this seems pretty clear, but it's not. Did the Vice President become the President or just assume the powers? Is there a difference to that distinction? And what is that difference? There was no definition of inability. And who determined the inability? Was it the president or the vice president, the Congress, a judge, a doctor? Who did this? Now, per Wikipedia, there were a number of incidents that called into question the ability of this clause to address the issues at hand. In 1841, William Henry Harrison died in office. Vice President John Tyler assumed the title of president, although there was a lot of debate as to if he was president or just had the powers of the president. He eventually took the presidential oath of office and Congress declared him to be president, but it was controversial to say the least. His assumption to the office of president upon the death of the previous, however, set a precedent for the handful of other VPs that assumed the office after their predecessor died in office. In 1893, Grover Cleveland apparently had secret cancer surgery that left him incapacitated for a time. Nothing was done, but should something have been done? In 1919, Woodrow Wilson had his nearly fatal, very debilitating stroke. As we discussed in a prior episode, his wife kept his condition secret for a long time, eventually aided by his Democrat horde. But when she wanted to try to run him again, you know, so she could keep power as the assumed office of Madam President, the Democrats turned on him and threatened to expose her if she tried it. So they declined. Prior to the 25th Amendment, there had been 16 times when the office of vice president had been vacant. This could have caused major problems had something happened to the president at the same time. Due to health problems throughout his presidency, Dwight D. Eisenhower had an agreement with Vice President Richard Nixon to have him assume powers, but not the office, in order to keep the executive branch running. But this was really just kind of a formalized handshake agreement. This was not a solution to the problem of a lack of clarity. 
So the original proposal was made in 1963, but was written in a way that would give a lot of power to Congress, potentially leading to abuse of that power to remove a president and or a vice president for pretty much any reason. As the 1960s rolled on, it became clear that medical advancements could potentially prolong the life of an incapacitated president, so clarity was, again, desperately needed as to who does what and when. So in January of 1965, as the first piece of proposed legislation for the year, Senator Birch Bay proposed SJ Resolution 1 in the Senate, and Representative Emanuel Seller proposed HJ Resolution 1 in the House. This proposal clarified the first attempt made in 1963, and it closed some of the gaps and the loopholes that the original proposal had. President Johnson endorsed the proposal about three weeks after it was proposed, and something we rarely see today, the proposal got bipartisan support. So, let's look at the text. Section 1 reads as follows. Section 1, quote, In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Very basic, very clear. There is now no question about the fact that the vice president assumes the office, not just the powers. Section 2, quote, Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. This closed one of the loopholes of the 1963 proposal that kind of left an empty vice presidential office just hanging out there. Now, there is no question the president shall, not should or has the option to, shall nominate a VP and the Congress votes to confirm. Section 3, quote, Whenever the president transmits to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Now, this is generally a temporary transfer of power by the president to the vice president, not a change in office. This is the procedure used when the president is sedated for surgery or other medical procedures, for instance. He will transfer the powers of the presidency to the vice president in the off chance that an emergency situation arises during his temporary incapacitation. When the president regains his ability to resume his duties, he then officially takes those powers back from the vice president. Finally, section four, quote, Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Thereafter... When the president transmits to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office, unless the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit within four days to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. 
Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session, if the Congress, within 21 days after receipt of the latter written declaration, or if Congress is not in session, within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President shall continue to discharge the same as acting President. Otherwise, the President shall resume the powers and duties of his office. <sighs> this is the section that's been talked about for the last five or six years. This is still fairly ambiguous as it doesn't actually define inability because that word can be defined in many ways and defining it could potentially cause the constitutional crisis down the road somewhere. So rather than define it, they set up a system for the vice president, along with the majority of the presidential cabinet, to declare the president unable to perform his duties. When they submit this declaration to the president pro temp of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, the vice president immediately assumes the powers and duties of the office, not the office itself. The president then has the ability to essentially appeal this assertion of his inability, which gives the VP and the cabinet members four days to counter his appeal. If it gets to this point, the Congress must assemble, if not already in session, and vote on the ability of the president. A two-thirds majority in both houses is required to remove the president under this amendment. If the Congress opts not to act in 21 days, the powers default to the vice president. If the Congress assembles and fails to reach a two-thirds majority in both houses, stating that the president is unable to discharge his duties, then the president resumes his office and full powers and duties of that office. Now, during President Trump's reign of terror, the call to remove him via the 25th Amendment came pretty much what was it like monthly weekly they tried to say that his walking carefully as a 70 year old man down a wet ramp was a sign of cognitive issues they said that he had neurological issues because he used two hands to raise a glass to his mouth one time they used his random misspeaks and occasional tongue-tied words to try to say that he was losing it uh, they so wanted vice president pence to declare trump unable to discharge the duties of his office now in reality pence could have tried there is no qualification as to inability. Recall that. That includes popularity. If a president is so hamstrung due to being hated by everyone, that could be considered an inability, and it could warrant his being declared unable. The problem is that Trump was neither incapacitated, in cognitive decline, mentally impaired, or unpopular to the point that he couldn't get anything done. In fact, quite the opposite. Whether you liked what he did and tried to do, whether you think he did what you wanted him to do, or whether you believed he did anything at all or not, the reality is he was acting as a president on the national and the global stage. It would have been a massive abuse of the 25th Amendment to remove him. There would have been a better case made against Reagan in the last few years as he started to slowly move into early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Now, moving to our current potato-in-chief, Joe Biden, the Republicans have made the case, I think adequately, that Joe needs to go via the 25th Amendment. I know that the media, his staff, his Marxist cronies, have all downplayed Biden's obvious dementia and cognitive impairment, but we all, I mean, you know, when I say all, I actually mean, you know, all know that Biden is a shell of a man, just a meat suit at this point. I truly believe that the only reason he hasn't been removed is because his vice president would then assume the office. And Kamala Harris is an absolute moron. 
there's a reason she was the first to drop out of the presidential race. She was grossly disliked as she's a grossly dislikable person. And if you listen to her babblings, you'll quickly understand that although cognitively just fine, she's more of a meat suit than Biden is. Furthermore, a majority of the president's cabinet must agree with the vice president to remove the president. Well, the cabinet is the cabinet because the president hand-selected them. To get eight out of 15 cabinet members to turn on you would be a pretty massive feat. Now, the cabinet members, if you're curious, are the secretaries of state, treasury, defense, interior, agriculture, commerce, labor, health and human resources, housing and urban development, transportation, energy, education, veterans affairs, homeland security, and the attorney general. So on February 19th, 1965, the Senate passed this amendment as proposed. The House revised the amendment and passed their revision on April 13th, sending it back to the Senate on April 22nd. The Senate didn't agree with the revisions as written, so a conference committee was called, and on July 6th, the differences were resolved, and the final version of the amendment was passed by both houses and sent to the states for ratification. Six days later, on July 12th, Nebraska was the first to ratify the amendment. 31 of the needed 38 states ratified it within the first year, and the last seven states needed, ending with Nevada, ratified it by February 10, 1967. So about one and two-thirds years, not the longest to take to ratify, but among the longest for sure. Another nine states ratified it by May 25, 1967, bringing the total to 47 states in just under two years. But three states never ratified it. Georgia, North Dakota, and South Carolina. Doesn't really matter, though. They can hold their breath all they want. It's constitutional law. So with this amendment, with the obvious mental decline in our current president, will they enact Section 4 of the 25th Amendment? I'd be surprised. Section 1 and 2 of this amendment have been used. Section 3 has been used many times. Section 4 has been considered officially twice with Reagan and twice with Trump, but it's never been invoked. With cackling Kamala as the vice president and the hand-picked Marxist cabinet currently in place, there's no way that the Democrats would ever push Biden out and install her. The truth, though, as much as I'd hate it, is that Biden is the first genuine candidate for invocation of the fourth section of the 25th Amendment. His obvious dementia and inability to formulate clear thoughts, or speech for that matter, his constant misspeaks, his flubs and babbling, it's going to get us all killed we're going to get pulled into a war or lose our allies or who knows what his mental incapacity will cause, but we shall see. It's clear that the Democrats in general do not want him to run again. There's a possibility that they decide to shove him out inside the last six months or less of his presidency, you know, long enough to get a fresh new Gavin Newsom-like demented, perverted, degenerate, idiotic candidate, but not long enough for Kamala to do anything too stupid. Eh, time will tell, however. And speaking of time, we're out of that. You know, that time thing. So, with only two more amendments to go, I'll simply say, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.